The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. Episode 12 of the SJP Wrestling Podcast. Or, I suppose, if you're from Bristol, another episode 7. Hiya Steve, how are you doing? <laughs> um, on today's show, we have a brilliant discussion with Joel Redman, who was one half of the very first NXT Tag Team Champions with Adrian Neville, who is now PAC in AEW, has been out and worked for All Japan, uh, and has a fantastic story about how he got into the business and the places he's been and the places he's worked. Um, before we get on to today's show, however, I want to look back on last week's episode where we had a little review of the career of the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal. I want to thank you all so much for the interactions we had about the Legion of Doom um, and the positive feedback we've had about the show since. Coming up in future episodes, we have um, a great look back on Survivor Series 2001, the end of the Invasion storyline, and potentially what could have been there, I suppose. And we're also going to be looking back at Raw Rumble 1992, with Ric Flair's fantastic performance, um, Bobby Heenan's wonderful performance on commentary, and all the rest that was going on in January of 1992 in the WWF. Any comments, questions, or thoughts, or even memories of either of those shows, Survivor Series 2001, Raw Rumble 1992, please reach out on the social media platforms that we have for the show. Um, we are available on Twitter and Facebook, at SJP Wrestling Pod. And also, some of you may have noticed that this week we've now got a Instagram for the show. Uh, again, SJP Wrestling Pod. So please reach out, find us. Um, if you've got Instagram, give it a follow there as well. Please bear with me. I'm very, very new to the whole Instagram situation. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm very dependent upon one of my daughters helping me with that. But by all means, reach out on the Twitter, the Facebook and everywhere else and let us know your memories of those two quite, quite important and memorable events. Um, but that's enough of what's coming up on the show. In future weeks, let's have a look at what we've got today and have a listen about the incredible career of Joel Redman. All Japan, former NXT and Evolution Wrestling star Joel Redman. How are we doing, sir? Pretty good. Thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. Pretty good. Um, so, yeah, just thought I'd, uh, we could have a quick chat about wrestling for a little while, talk about your career and your, your very eventful time in this crazy world. Yeah, sounds good to me. I think Michelle was getting bored of me talking about wrestling during the lockdown, so it's nice to have someone to have a chat with who doesn't mind listening to a bit of it. Ah, is that your better half, is it? It is. It is my fiance. Ah, yeah. I can, I can fully sympathise there. I mean, one of the main reasons I, uh, as people who have listened to the show previously will all already know, I've um, kind of semi-pushed into doing this by my wife. She gave me the confidence to start a podcast up, thinking I'd be good at it but also the secondary motivation, I think, so that I wouldn't be chewing her ear off by wrestling all the time. So Yeah, that's it, exactly. Right. <laughs> I know exactly where you're coming from. I know exactly where you're coming from. 
So you mentioned um, lockdown there. Uh, how, in general, how has that affected you day to day? We'll start off with that one. Since you, since you brought it up, how has that affected you? Obviously, uh, wrestling wise, you haven't got anything going on. But I mean, in general, in general life, how has how has the coronavirus affected you, sir? Well, I mean, physically, I'm I'm sort of fortunate that I worked in the gym before the before the big lockdown. So I sort of borrowed a load of kit, made a little gym in the shed. So I managed to keep myself uh, physically in some kind of shape. They're probably not in the shape I was in before, but at least uh, my cardio isn't isn't too bad uh just more of a mental thing isn't it i think when you haven't got the wrestling and you haven't got that sort of vent at the weekends that sport that we all love to do it's, it's quite hard mentally on you quite challenging um but i think also puts things into perspective a little bit and you, you do take for granted sometimes that you know i sort of made a living out of wrestling and, and working in a gym which are two things that obviously i'm passionate about and it almost isn't really work in a way and you kind of that was my living uh and during lockdown i you know, with no income from wrestling, I started working in a, a retail store, just sort of stacking shelves and, you know, oh, okay. in, into perspective that, you know, I'm very fortunate to have the wrestling in the first place and not to take it for granted. I think when shows do come back to not, not be lazy, not that I'm ever, you know, I pride myself on not being too lazy in the ring, but there, there are times when you think, oh God, I've got to drive to, to Leeds today or, you know, I've got to put the boots on again and probably mm. just stop taking it for granted now and just appreciate the fact that I do get to do that. And there's a lot of people that don't get that chance. And uh, yeah, that's the main thing I I'm taking away from the lockdown. I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's good that you can sort of um, take some positives from it, I guess, learn lessons, I suppose, for, for want of a better term uh, from the whole experience. I mean, it's, com- it's, it's completely crazy times. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I speak to people from different companies and, and so on quite often. It's the same running theme. It's just like, why we miss it so much because we never thought that we'd be in a position where we would have to miss it. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's just completely alien, isn't it? So, yeah, you do take it for granted, you know. It does, like I say, put things into, into perspective a little bit. And I'm hopefully that you know those of us that are staying on with the job, and you know, I know a few people that have called it a day now during lockdown. But the ones that are staying around will appreciate what we have a bit more, and yeah, just. Yeah, be thankful that we get to entertain people like yourself, I guess, and get paid to do it, which is, you know, a very lucky thing to have. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, people say, don't they, the old, the old cliche, the old saying, I suppose, if you find a job you love, you don't actually work a day in your life, do you? So Exactly. Or, 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 or I might have never... butchered that then, but it's, it's something to that, yeah. that, that sort of... <laughs> no, exactly. I've never, you know, my, my parents were farmers and my granddad was a farmer too, and they're not particularly rich people, but they always said to me that, you know, they sort of have all the live off the land they've got all the beef there and they grow their own vegetables and it was you know my dad was always loved animals and stuff and the fact that he did that for a living made him the richest man in the world you know it doesn't matter if mm. you've got millions of pounds it's it's whether you wake up each day looking forward to what you're doing and you know i certainly would rather be able to wrestle and you know be able to pay my rent maybe not be rich but be able to get by you know than have to sort of work in office every day i may have more money but it's about quality of life, I think, and about enjoying what you do and having good experiences. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I'm a big, um, I'm a big. Uh, I don't know how to word it. I suppose mental health advocate. I suppose is a term that people use a great deal. Um, I think that's a bit grandiose for 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 me. But I mean, I, I'm a big sort of believer in making sure people are happy in what they do, and and, and money isn't always the answer to everything. Um, I know that feeling of getting up and dreading going to work. So I can yeah. fully understand uh, where you're coming from with regards to maybe not earning as much as, say, you know, somebody doing a job they hate but enjoying everything every day is a fantastic feeling. Yeah, um, exactly. As long as it can pay your bills and you, you know you can yeah. live a 
comfortable-ish existence, it's it's all good with me. And like you know, with wrestling, I've you know I spent those years in the states, and I've been fortunate to be out to Japan a few times, and you know all over Europe. And there's a lot of things that you, you do take for granted. And before the lockdown, I probably did take for granted. Now you think back at it, and you go, you know, I've seen a lot of different bits of the world that you know I've been paid to do it and paid flown out there and looked after and these experiences that money can't probably buy you. You know, it's really good. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, you mentioned. Um, your your parents there and, and growing up on the farm and so on um t- tell us more about that the, the experience of growing up on a farm what you had to do um, I'm, I'm assuming you would have had uh chores to help out with and so on and then from there how you discovered this this crazy world of wrestling as a youngster uh so my my grandfather was uh, born in india and then he uh he came they sent him back to england to go to school in england he went to cambridge university um, and got a degree in mathematics and he rode for Cambridge rowing team. So he was offered okay. some big jobs in London, sort of uh, in the big offices there, but he always wanted to be a farmer. So him and a friend of his bought a cheap burnt out old, old car and bought this bit of marshland in the middle of Devon, which all the farmers said would never be a farm. And, you know, it's turned into a pretty good farm now. And with the help of my, my parents as well, they paid off all the mortgage and stuff and they own, own the farm and things. So, that was the farm. Uh, my parents uh, lived in Australia for a few years, and when they moved back and fell pregnant, they bought a house near the near the farm. But it was a very rundown old old house. Had a, a generator for the electric. There was no proper electric in there and things. And okay. that's where I sort of grew up as a kid uh, till I was about eight or nine. Then we moved down to the big farmhouse. Um, so I've been growing up there. We didn't have, well, I'm sure internet. We didn't, it was all dial-up internet back in those days. We didn't have internet or anything. And I don't remember having a television or anything or watching any real TV as a kid. I was always outside in the woods and playing around outside in the farm and things. So I mean, that's that's fun, that's, to me, that's fantastic, the, 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 having that option of being yeah. out and about all the time. You know, I, I, I grew up in, in Gloucester, um, and obviously there's a little bit of greenery in the hills and yeah, so yeah. on around where we are, but I was always out on my bike all day. Yeah, so exactly. you look at kids nowadays, they're, they're much more on the screens, aren't they, I suppose? Yeah, exactly. It's all about screens and phones and stuff now. And, you know, certainly wasn't any, any of that when I was growing up. And, uh, but at the same time, we didn't have a TV, so I wasn't exposed to professional wrestling. But there's mm-hmm. no way of, of watching wrestling. Um, a good friend of mine, Chris Andrews, you might have heard of. Yes. Uh, from Devon, who's retired now as a wrestler, but was a very good wrestler. Him and his brother Sam grew up a couple of hills away from me. So I would walk over the hills to their farm. Uh, and they had Sky, so we would watch Raw or the pay-per-views at their place. You know, I'd go around and watch the pay-per-view or something on a Sunday night. And then from there, we sort of started resting on some hay bales. With, uh, I think we had hay bales, tyres, and these old cow mats. And then we put a tarpaulin over it. And the RSJs, there was four RSJs. We drilled holes in and put these sort of fake ropes up. And it was called the Devon Junior Wrestling Alliance. And there was all the schoolmates to go in there and dress up as wrestlers. And oh, that's fantastic. Which is good. There's a couple of good moments of Chris and Sam wrestling and their grand coming down the road. And well, what are you boys doing in there? <laughs> <laughs> so, how old were you then? Sorry. So, how, say, how, say again, how old what you were at that time? Oh, Christ. 13, I think. 13, yeah, 12, 13, 14. So a big gang of you, sort of 12, 13, 14. Yeah, there was a lot. Building your own ring out of hay bales and chucking yeah, each yeah. other around, yeah. Which isn't a bad thing for a kid to do, you know. It was better than playing a playstation and get out there and do something with the boys and, and i mean from there then we found out about a backyard wrestling company in exeter called xbw and they had a hundred lads i think that used to go there and mess around on these mattresses in an old church hall okay um, ended up sort of going there and doing that and then 
from there sort of went into pro wrestling. But uh, I mean, that was a weird story. That was a, a company called Revolution British Wrestling was meant to open the school at Exeter, and the guy pulled out last minute. He was going to sort of manage the school. Um, so when I was 15, I just contacted the, the company in London and just said, I'll sort of manage it and just we'd all ship in money and pay for this little studio and leisure centre and we'd pay wrestlers to come down and train us. So sort of Phil Powers and Sammy Ray and Andy Simmons and eventually mm-hmm. the, U- the UK kid, which is the, my first real trainer. Okay. I, and you say about going across to your friend's house, uh, walking over a couple of hills and so on. How, how long would it take you to get over there to watch an episode of Raw? Well, I think I had a little... Sort of motor, uh, little motorbike at the time, or a quad bike. So, oh, that's fun! I just got even across on that and stick it in a hedge, the motorbike in one of the hedges, and then walk across the road. So it didn't take too long. But oh, drive, drive. Once I was old enough, sort of sixteen, seventeen, I'd drive it up to the pub as well and just chuck it in the hedge. And yeah, you know, you're okay in the fields if you've had a couple of beers and driving your motorbike. But it was yeah, yeah good, good existence. You know, there's certainly times I think when you get to later teenage years when you do want to be in a city and you want to be you know near the cinema or the, the nightclubs or something you know and you do feel a bit isolated down there but as a young age it was a good place to grow up and you know i've got you know a, a fantastic parents so i was brought up very well which is very fortunate yeah i mean it, it sounds it sounds brilliant like the, again the image that i have in my head now of you and your friends building your own ring and then you ramping this little bike across some hills to go and watch an episode of monday night raw exactly. it's it's absolutely fantastic to me that that is that is brilliant yeah, um, well, that's how it was and that's and you know when we another thing that we all did when we watched wrestling and uh, i'm not knocking the british wrestling now because it's it's evolved into a really good product but we used to watch monday night raw and and you could, you'd watch Stone Cold or you'd watch these wrestlers and you just thought to yourself, if I want to be a wrestler, I have to go to the gym. You know, I have to lift weights. Yeah. So we all would chip in our money and we'd buy some weights and stick it in one of the sheds there and we'd all start lifting weights from a very young age. Um, and it wasn't like a question of, shall I go to the gym or shall I train? It was just, if I want to be a wrestler, I have to lift weights. And there was no eruption. You know, it was that era, that sort of late 90s era of wrestling when yeah. everyone did have big bodies. And yeah, I mean, that might have changed a bit now uh, with the way you look at British wrestling now, but... It was definitely a good way of looking at it at a young age, and it's helped me out in my career. Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming. Like, I mean, that's that that would take a lot of commitment and a lot of motivation for yourself. When there's there's other distractions as you get older, which which all kids, yeah. of course, go through. Um, you mentioned yourself going off to the the cinema, and maybe not wanting to be as isolated on the farm and so on. And obviously, yeah. you know, the pub and girls came along, and that was my biggest distraction for anything I ever did. So that was <laughs> so the motivation to for you all to be working out and so on with these weights you've all chipped into boy again it's just a testament to to, to your commitment to what you wanted to do and what was yeah. your first um your first real memory then of seeing wrestling that started you to want to make this trek over the hills to watch raw so before i watched raw um when i was yeah maybe 11 i guess i would have been we just started secondary school um sam and chris were going into exeter to the corn exchange to watch a company called the wrestling alliance they had a live show in there and okay, i know the, i know the corn exchange i don't know i don't know that company firsthand but the corn exchange i'm familiar with well, the, the wrestling alliance was sort of similar to all-star really they ran you know a tremendous amount of shows and a really good touring company run by a guy called scott conway um and yeah i'd done a lot of judo as a kid so i'd grown up doing judo anyway so i had a bit of an interest in grappling and they took me into this show in exeter corn exchange and i watched it sort of live and that was my first experience of pro wrestling i'd never seen any kind of pro wrestling before that i remember watching james mason on the show and chad collier um a few others but it's not a bad way i don't think of having your first uh image of wrestling being live 
British wrestling, especially someone like a James or someone of this level, you know, you're watching really good British wrestling. And I think as soon as I saw it, because I'd done the judo and I was doing a bit of sort of acting and stuff, and it just sort of fitted what I was doing, really. And I thought it was quite a good thing to try and get into. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, and of course, from there, you say, you say yourself, you were um, over the years then, you, you were you're building your own rings and working out and um, and so on. And then you went to the wrestling school. Yeah. Um, what was your, your first thoughts walking in? Did you have any particular nerves or were you feeling more confident because you've been doing your own stuff? And, and the big well, thing I always ask people is, how was the first real bump? Well, like I say, I mean, the first school was, I was sort of managing the first school, which is bringing people down to teach us on the mats. And the boys that were there were all guys that had been doing the backyarding. So we all knew each other. We were just, uh, of course, yeah. We were just sort of funding these pros to come down and train us. And uh, I mean, I went on the summer camps with Phil Powers. Well, I would have been 15 or 16 at the time. And that was just refereeing and stuff, just learning the job that way, which is a really good way of doing it and a good, good experience. And then the first school would have been the UK Kids School, Varsity Pro Wrestling. Uh, we were like the original class. And he opened that school in Portsmouth. So we would drive from Exeter to Portsmouth every Saturday. We'd drive there and drive back, which was about a six-hour round journey. Um, wow. So train for a couple of hours on a Saturday. And there was one lad who trained with us called Sean who would get a train from Penzance to Exeter and then sit in the car from Exeter to Portsmouth. And he'd do it every week on a Saturday. But there, wow. wasn't, there wasn't <laughs> the amount of schools that there is now. You know, there's now you... Well, you probably travel an hour and you, know, you get yourself to a wrestling school. There wasn't that many schools back then. He kind of had to travel that far. But, yeah, uh, it, there seems to be, if you literally type in wrestling school in the UK into Facebook or Google or anything, there seems to be one in virtually every city now, doesn't there? Yeah. So people who want to be involved now are, I, I think, hugely fortunate, providing these schools are doing doing what they should be in the right manner and obviously teaching the, the youngsters, and maybe not so young as well on occasions, uh, things safely and in the right way. Um but back, like, like you said then, there, there wasn't much about at all. I mean, just to put it into context, this, this, this individual who travelled from Penzance on the train and so on, how much of a round trip would you estimate that would have been for him on, on, a, on a day? I would have thought the train would be a good couple of hours, probably a 10-hour round journey. So again, that just shows the level of commitment right. that, that, that yeah. you and your friends had at this stage, doesn't it? Yeah, which is, you know, it's not, I don't think, that's a lot to ask people now, you know, if you said you're going to travel 10-hour round journey to go and train and we were paying you know quite a lot of money as well to the trainer there it was mm. more money than you normally pay in wrestling schools now so it's costing us a lot of money as you know 16 year old kids you're not flash with cash you know we're sort of no, working of in the pub sort of part-time when i wasn't at college that money was funding all my wrestling training um but it's not a bad thing you know sometimes if you get it a bit harder to get into the business it makes you appreciate it more it makes you work a bit harder so you kind of get rid of the people that are time wasters and you get the ones that are really serious about it and I think now there are a lot of schools in, rest in, the, in the country now, but, you know, when you're looking for a wrestling school, you, you shouldn't just look for the one that's closest. You should look for the one that's the most credible. Uh, mm -hmm. Look for the one that has the connections because wrestling's about networking, about connections. And you want to go to a school where the guy has got good connections to other companies, you know, and can get you exposure that you need. Yeah, into matches and, and onto shows and so on. And I suppose that really sort of leads me into um my next question then from from with regards to your training and who you were working with and you were bringing guys in to to train people where you were um you mentioned the uk kid i, I believe he was your in wasn't he on, on to shows is that correct yeah kind of and also just this revolution british wrestling company um because i'd sort of taken the reins of 
being the sort of manager of the school at a young age, uh, my mm. first show was for them. They they ran a show in Topsham near Exeter. Um, that was my first oh, match yeah, against a guy called Sammy Ray. He was wearing a mask as Professor Aikida. Um, and it was, you know, absolutely dreadful match. Um, well, I'm not, not <laughs> knocking Sammy at all. He's a great worker, but I was, God, I was awful. I played 16 years old and it was just sort of throw the local lad on the show because he's helping run stuff. You know, I was definitely yeah, not in a position where I should have been wrestling. Um, but yeah, everyone's first match is bad. Were you nervous then, going in? Oh, Christ, I'm 33. I can't remember that at all. I've, <laughs> I've had too many, too many knocks in the head. I think my memory, my, my short-term memory is good. You know, if, if you said what I had for dinner last week, I remember, but when people ask me about stuff from my childhood, I do struggle a little bit. Oh, okay. It might just be the effects of resting, I don't know. Yeah, when I think back to my childhood, I don't I have some images, but not, not as good a memory as my fiance has of her childhood and stuff. And that is just the toll wrestling takes on you a bit. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, then. So from there, I suppose you, you start moving around the UK and working for other companies. What, what are your main memories of that? And how did you how did you get booked elsewhere? Was it very much word of mouth? Was it people who knew you on other shows? Yeah, probably. I mean, I remember sort of, and you know, you know, so you know Chris Andrews, so you know he's a, mm-hmm. a Greek god of a physique and, and a very, very gifted wrestler, far more gifted than I was, naturally. And I remember just sort of watching Chris and Sam get a lot of bookings and I wouldn't really get booked, which rightly so, you know, I was very out of shape as a kid and I wasn't uh, as, as natural as they were in terms of my wrestling ability. Um, so eventually I was sort of thrown a bone which was the FWA Academy and a UK kid just sort of sent me there to do a a job for Mark Sloan and Mark must have seen something in me but he kept booking me with the FWA Academy so I'd go up to Portsmouth and wrestle the shows for him once a month or something uh, and that was kind of my my in really because they had a good name the FWA at the time and it was good to be working there on a regular basis and I met a lot of good workers there who sort of helped me out and got me noticed a little bit and then I eventually went and started training with Mark Sloan uh, moved to Portsmouth when I was 18 or 19 moved in with uh, Mark Haskins we got a little flat together uh, okay. So I started training together and then started getting on some of the sort of more internet-based um, shows in the country. Uh, and that, that's probably what got me a bit more established. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes sense. And then again, I suppose from there, the more established you get, the I'm assuming anyway, outside looking in, of course, the more established you get, the easier it is for you to then get further bookings elsewhere, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's about meeting people and making connections with people and sort of networking. So... Yeah, and like I say, Mark Sloan and FWA Academy had such a good name behind it when you look to sort of James Ties and the Birchalls and all these guys that had come mm-hmm. from that school. Because it wasn't, when I was training there, it was a thing called the Super 8. So he closed the academy and he picked eight wrestlers that he wanted to train on a full-time basis. And that was the Super 8. But, you know, Doug and, and Mark were good friends. And whenever Doug would bring the Noah guys over for tours, they'd sort of base themselves at our training school. So most of that training was with the Japanese boys, um, putting us through some of the dojo training and, you know, it was a real great way as a young man to learn how to wrestle, really, because they were helping us a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. I, that, that sounds fantastic. I mean, the whole um, the whole eight selected, I, I, it's almost like uh, sort of trials, the way you've worded that there. Is, is that the sort of yeah. painting the right picture in my head there? Yeah, it was. It was, it was eight boys selected and uh, mm. sorry, what, seven boys and a girl. Um, uh, you know, within a year. There was three of us left. You know, me and okay. Martin, Wade Fitzgerald. It was, it was hard training. You know, we were put through our paces, but it ended up just being the three of us and Mark, and then that sort of stayed for another year until, you know, I called it a day and went back down to Devon um, to open my own company down there. But yeah, that was it. Was good training. You know, Mark obviously 
taught me a lot and he's, he, he's a massive help to my career and got me where I am, I guess, or where I've been in my career. Oh, okay. I understand. I mean, you say then that you went back to Devon and started your own company. Obviously, you had the experience previous of the school and helping run um, the previous company a little bit as well that got you your first few matches. Yeah. It was this second company that you went down and ran very much on your own or was this with a, a partner? I mean, it, tell me about the experience of that. So before I went to Portsmouth, there was a guy called Dan Walsh. Um, he wrestled for a little while as well. And he, he'd bought a ring from Phil Powers. And he, they were, yeah, I'm not knocking down, but they were sort of backyarding. They, didn't, they hadn't been professionally taught. Okay. And they put the ring up in there and they were messing around. And I went, Phil sent me down there one day when I was a young, young bloke. And I went down and watched them train, tried to give them a few pointers and stuff. And then I went off to Portsmouth after that and left. Um, and also before I went to Portsmouth, there was sort of Dick Riley and PJ Jones and these wrestlers um, wrestling on crash mats in North Devon. So you had these two groups of wrestlers, one in South Devon, one in North Devon. And when I came back, it was still the two groups. And it made more sense for me being one county just to, just to put them all together, base it in Exeter and call it a Devon Wrestling Association. And it was just all the different groups of wrestlers down there. We'd have one base, put the ring up full time and have a little training school there and run shows. So that's the DWA, which is still going today. Um, and that was me and, well, I, I sort of started it, trained them. And then I'd already met the UK Dominator years and years ago when I was first managing that first school. Uh, and he just got back in touch with me when he heard that school opened up. He came along and helped train them, which is a perfect dynamic because my stuff is maybe more technical map-based wrestling. Uh, yeah, And I'm all for it, promos or interviews or the character side of things. And, you know, Dom's a great wrestler, but he's also a very, very good character. He's very charismatic. Um, and the two of us together was quite a good combination, I think, to try and cover most areas of wrestling. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, it's, if you've got different people with different strengths, you, you want to be able to have students or pupils, I suppose, tap into the strengths from, from various others, don't you? So that exactly. covers, all, covers all bases, I suppose, especially if people are sort of... Well, I, you know, I wasn't in the position to train people. I was in early 20s and certainly mm-hmm. didn't know enough about the business to be coaching. And, you know, I look back at it now and, there are some wrestlers there that have gone on to do quite well. You know, Dick Riley's done well for himself and PJ's done well. And, but, it, you know, I wasn't in a position where I should have been coaching, but then there was no one else to coach, you know, and I kind of felt like it was difficult for me and Chris to be wrestlers. We had to travel so far. If I can make it a bit easier for them, this will, will help. You know, and it is just to get them on a couple of shows so they can make those connections. And I sort of said to the lads, I'm not, I'm not your coach. You know, we're just going to spar. We're just sparring, yeah. and if I, if I tell you something, don't but don't make don't feel I'm your I'm your coach sort of thing. I don't feel in a position where I should be coaching people. Okay, no, I I understand. I mean, from that sort of time period, then was it around then that you started to get noticed and put forward potentially for going off to Florida, or was it a bit later on? Explain to me the process of how you go from working where you are in Devon to ending up basically in Florida with Florida Championship Wrestling, which obviously then evolved into NXT. Uh, I've been wrestling all over the country, I guess, before that. So all kinds of different different companies. You know, I do the odd show for All Star here and there, but not very many. Um, that would come later in my career, sort of full-time run there. But I was doing a lot of premier promotions on the South Coast, wrestling rounds matches. Um, yeah, I mean, during my time in Portsmouth, I was very lucky to be on the, the Pro Wrestling Noah debut show in England at the Coventry okay. Skydome. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Sort of Doug Williams got me on that. It must have been four or 5,000 people in the crowd. That was a, a big match. You know, I was 19, I think, at the time when I did that match. It was the opener. Um, so that was a big bit of exposure for me to get my name out there and 
I just took the guys to a training seminar in uh, Nottingham, which was part of the FWA when it got rebranded. And Drew McDonald was there. He just said he'd been trying to get in touch with me and WWE wanted to see me and send off my details and we'd go for a tryout. Uh, and so the first tryout wasn't very good, but they invited me back for a second tryout and that's where they offered me the contract. Okay, excellent. Um, so, so when you say the first tryout wasn't very good, um, but the second one you got offered offered a deal, what were the two differences, the main differences there between the two? What was it that made you sort of walk away from the one going, oh, okay, and then the second one getting the contract? Uh, I think there's, there's two things. Probably the, the first one you were told to sort of do matches. So they just put you with someone else and you did a match and they watched. Uh, and the second tryout, the one I got signed on, was just literally stand around the ring and just tag in, tag out, you know, just get in there and wrestle and show some aggression. There wasn't any planning or structure to it. You just go in and you just put holes on people, which suits me more. Um, and the first one, I was so nervous and so sort of headstrong on getting signed. It was like it meant everything to me to get signed. And that probably isn't a good thing to have that attitude when you go there. And the second time I went, I was just thinking, yeah, you're not going to sign me today. You know, I'm just going back, but I'm just going to enjoy the experience. And it was the O2 in London. So, you know, I'm going to be backstage at the O2 going to enjoy that but i didn't feel the same pressure on me and i think then you you have more fun and you relax more in the ring and you wrestle better uh and that's probably the big thing that was the difference between the two yeah that makes sense that makes sense almost like the, the second one you, you didn't put as much pressure on yourself potentially yeah. so maybe that was put the same the same effort in but yeah, yeah of course was, i had more fun you know, i was relaxing just enjoying the experience and anything with wrestling when you can relax and enjoy it everyone wrestles better it doesn't matter who it is but the minute you have more confidence and you just relax you're always a better wrestler for it no yeah that makes it that makes a great deal of sense um so so you know you've been offered your, your contract you've had you've had your um your tryouts you've been offered your contract there um you're shipping out to florida um fcw originally uh tell me about your first experiences of going there what were your first thoughts when you walked into from what from what i can understand and what i've seen of, of images images online was a relatively stripped back training facility for FCW. Yeah, yeah, it was just a, a, a warehouse in, a bit in Tampa, um, and probably thirty people under contract, maybe less. So there wasn't that many people. Um, yeah, and just you're nervous, obviously, because it's WWE. You've got a WWE contract, but mm. not like it looks when you look at the performance center and stuff. It was just a, a sort of warehouse environment. There was no air conditioning. If it was, they were feeling generous. They might open the shutters for you a little bit but you imagine <laughs> right. summer it's some serious heat it's a tin roof warehouse you know there was some serious heat in oh, there. it was hard work the training but it was good you no know, it was good 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 fun and there's a lot of people that obviously at the time maybe weren't the names they are now but yeah they were big name wrestlers now so i look back at being able to train with them and i was in there at the same time with some of those guys that's pretty cool yeah yeah chuck some names out there let's let's have a let's let's find out for those for those who aren't aware it's quite a quite yeah, well, a little, I mean, little list of guys and guys and, and girls that you were associated with, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I was there. You had the sort of Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns and uh, Bray Wyatt and Dean Ambrose and all these guys were there, you know, at the same time as me. So when I first went there, they were all wrestling. Um, Big E, you know, all, all these sort of guys, I guess, that you've seen in the last few years on WWE would have been the guys that I was training with at the time. Um which is pretty cool to look back on. And my coach for the first six months was Ricky Steamboat. So he was my trainer for the first six months. Um, you know, I've done most of my career as a, as a blue eye. So he's, there's not many better people to teach you how to sell and stuff than Ricky Steamboat. You know, he's the master of that. So very fortunate to have him as a coach for the first six months. 
uh, these people like the Undertaker would turn up and train us, and Hulk Hogan come down for a train us a bit. And you know, it's pretty surreal when you look back at it now. Some of these people that was helping to coach us and the experiences you had out there. But at the time, you're just in the system, and you just want to get out onto the road and make it up to Monday Night Raw, really. So you just focused on working hard and, and doing the best you can. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I, I, it, it would be absolutely daft to me with some of the names you've put out there. Um, not not to just ask about a couple. Um, the two obvious that stand out who would pop down and uh, help out with the training on occasions were obviously Hogan and The Undertaker. Um, tell me about those experiences. What what did you manage to pick up from them? What was it like being around those? I mean, th- there's not many bigger names than those two, is there? No, so Hogan just came down for a couple of days. So he was really just like a Q&A. So he'd just come in, you'd ask him questions and pick his brains and stuff. Um, Undertaker, I was wrestling with Sammy Callahan in the ring, just doing some, some training. This is in the performance centre, so a bit later on. Um, and just feel this presence behind you. You knew someone was watching us and it was the Undertaker. <laughs> you turn around and me and Sammy were, used to get sort of stuck in a little bit in our training. So I think I had a bust lip or something at the time. And he was just telling us to calm down a bit, I think. But right. Yeah, good. You know, again, you just all sit in the ring. He sits in the ring of you. You just sit in there and you, he's just like any one of us almost. You just. You, just helps out and he just said any questions you got guys as far away and you just pick their brains you know and they'll watch you wrestle a bit and just pull up a few little things that you need to tweak and yeah it's really really good I mean I was a big Dean Malenko fan when I started watching wrestling he would come oh out my goodness me too Malenko I, I think it's fantastic yeah having him watch my stuff was really good and just seeing his his take on things and helping helping show you a few different techniques or different ways out of stuff and yeah it's invaluable really yeah, I can imagine. That's, that's, I mean, those three names there stand out to me. I mean, Hogan and Undertaker are very much two massive names. Um, Malenko was a big fan of myself growing up, the old WCW and so on. Um, but I was a huge fan and always have been of Ricky Steamboat as well. You say you were trained by him for the first few months of your run there. Yeah, um, I think probably around the first six months almost. I mean, he was, he was the coach down there at the time. So yeah, that was great. Dusty that's Rhodes incredible. was a promo coach too. So you know, having Dusty once a week to help with the promos and you're talking and stuff. I was going to ask you about Dusty shortly, actually. Yeah, I mean, how you you you, you say you 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 give the impression that you think that your promos are maybe not your strongest point. How was it working with with Dusty then, someone who is obviously notorious for being one of the best stickmen in in the business? Yeah, it's great. You know, but you just you coming in there. I, I've always struggled with the promos, so that's. The bit I was dreading most during the week was the promos, you know, the conditioning or the the gym work or the wrestling was was hard work, but it was okay. You know, I knew I could do that. But the the promos I'd always dread Wednesday evenings, which would be promo class, and you just you're literally just trying to find new characters and new ideas and just throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. But he would, if he saw something there or he, he did a certain character one week and he, he could see something in it, he'd he'd really nurture it and he'd really help you improve it. And he'd give you a lot of very valuable techniques and tips and he'd, he'd invest a lot of time in everybody you know he really would he'd, he'd you have a lot of people there at one point when i was there near the end there was must be touching 100 people there and he, you know, he really would get quite individual with people and he'd, he'd really work on your stuff for you that's that's incredible i mean again the name roads added to the list of hogan taker steamboat and, and the others is just is it blows my mind that the, the prospect of being able to just pick the brains of these people. It's 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 incredible. I mean, you, yeah, you no. talk there about the the promo class on a Wednesday, and he would go through however many people. I mean, but I I can't I can't vision this envision this myself. Was it like a 
is there a queue of people waiting to step up and cut a promo at Dusty, or is it? Yeah, exactly, exactly what it is. Exactly that. Right. And, and they've got a camera there, and they're filming it. So you just go up and you cut this promo to the camera, and then the next person goes up. You know, it's just it's just a, you just wait your turn really whenever you feel confident enough to get up and do it. So and it would sometimes break into two groups. It'd be like a slightly more advanced class and the intermediate class or something. So they'd break it into two. Um, but with the, with those names, you know, you are taught in wrestling and it, not to be too starstruck, really. Sometimes, you obviously, you can't help it, but mm. you're trying not to be like that, really, because, you know, I know they say don't be a mark or something is the term that wrestlers like to use, but you obviously need to be extremely respectful and there should be a hierarchy in wrestling and you should be respectful of your peers and people that have done it before you, but you've also got to, you don't want to be too much of a sort of fanboy, I guess, you know, you wouldn't want to be running out for autographs when they come in and stuff. You want to be, just picking their brains and having good questions as well. That was quite a hard thing. They turn up unexpected sometimes and it's just having good questions. You know, you don't want to waste their time with some stupid question. You need to make sure it's a proper question and getting the most out of them that you can. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, but again, mentioning Steamboat, you said it was only for a few months that he was there. Um, I'm assuming the sort of time that you were there at um, in, in Florida would you would you cross paths uh, with Tom Pritchard or Bill DeMott? Because they're both trainers there at a certain point as well, weren't they? So my first day was Bill DeMott's first day. So Tom Pritchard had just left. Oh, okay. So, yeah, my first day there was the same as Bill's. Uh, they were doing like a week tryout camp. So Bill was busy that week. So we had Perry Sassing was a coach for that week with us when we first went there. Um, but yeah, Bill was there for my whole time. So I was there So. The, two and a half years where it was I was in America was with Bill okay so he would be working with you on a, what, pretty much a daily basis and, and so on yeah kind of overseeing it he yeah was, he's sort of the boss you know, he's the manager so he'd, say he'd oversee it he'd be in the office there for you and he would take some of the advanced lads through through some training but yeah he sort of runs everything really he was the main main man and he gets a bad time, you know. He gets a lot of a bad rap. You look at some yeah, of this. Yeah, I was, was going to mention that, like a bit of a reputation of being a bit of a, a I suppose, for want of a better term, a bit of a hard nose, potentially. I suppose. Yeah, but like I've said on every podcast, you know, he was great with me. Uh, he was always, yep. always great with me, and, and yeah, like I've always said with wrestling, if you fail at something, like anything in life, if you fail at something, there's, there's two routes you can take. There's, there's one where you improve and you get better, and the other one you you bitch about it and you complain. Um, yeah, some people obviously choose the the quick route of just bitching about it and complaining. But if, you know, he was he basically was just, he was told by the head office, the boys need better cardio. They need to pick up their cardio and he drill us hard. Um, and he blow you up and he, well, he's trying to blow you up. And it's whether you want to come back next week and be fitter and do better. Or do you want to just complain about it? You know, there's yeah. two which you can take there. And I just found, I found Bill to be a very straight up man, very honest, not too much sort of bullshit really just tell you how it is. And, yeah. Which is what you need, isn't it, really? I think so. But everyone responds different ways. You know, I've, I think with, with coaching, you have got to kind of read the person you're teaching and people do respond to different kinds of kinds of coaching. And perhaps Bill only had one method, but, you know, it was good for me. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I see. Okay. Um, so from there, I mean, we're, we're then talking from, I suppose, FCW to NXT and the TV show and appearing on screen and so on. Um, and then you, you progressing on to being in the tag team tournament. I mean, where did you find out about tagging with, um, well, Adrian Neville as he was then, but Pac now on AEW, um, and being entered into the tournament? I think you replaced you replaced the Ascension, is that correct? Yeah, that's it, exactly. So the Ascension, um, 
you know, Tom Atomer sort of got released of his contract and they needed another team to throw in the tournament. And you know, with Pac, he's he's one he's in his own league, you know, he's actually an outstanding wrestler. He's incredible. It's a case of just just getting him on TV, I think. And I was British, you know, and I looked like a baby face. So let's let's throw these guys together and put them in a team and fortunate for me, I guess, because you know, I managed to sort of ride that for a bit and win those tag belts and have a have a good little spell there, um, for a bit of time. Yeah, and again, there's names around you as well, wasn't it? That obviously that Pac, who you know, AW Nive, um, working against um, a couple of members of the Wyatt family, was in the tag team tournament final against you, weren't they? In in yeah, 2013, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, working some of these names, and obviously when you won the tournament, Dusty was there again with the belts to hand them over. Um, yeah. We, you know, we've done a lot of house shows, so a lot of those guys I'd wrestled already on the on the house yeah. shows around Florida. So it was, it was just, the nerves are more because you're on TV. You know, I knew it was on Sky Sports and I knew some of the boys in England would be watching it and stuff and that's where your nerves really come from is that you, your family are watching it or something on TV back in England so you want to you do well. But like, the Wyatt family was always good. I remember wrestling um, Wyatt's, what was his name? Brody, well, Brody Lee is his name now, I guess, but Luke yeah. Harper is his name there. I remember wrestling a house show with those guys and I, I don't throw headbutts in the ring. I'm no good at them. For some reason, I tried to headbutt him, and I just caught him right in the eye, spit his eye open. Oh! <laughs> he gave me a good shoeing in the ring. I remember getting a few good, few good stiff kicks from him. With, you know, rightly so. It was a good, good receipt for a silly mistake <laughs> on my behalf. But, yeah, he's not a small fella, and have I any stretch of imagination? Is he? No, trying to try, trying to header a ball into the bottom corner, and I jumped up and threw my head at him and just cracked him in the eyebrow and split him open. But yeah, it's okay. I'm, he got his payback on me. Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay. <laughs> Um, with with regards to the the TV matches, then getting you know beams back to the UK on Sky and so on, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about with regards to that about actually being on the television. Um, you wrestled, um, I suppose, commentator now Corey Graves uh, on one occasion in a singles match. Yeah, um, and Jim Ross was actually commentating on NXT for for what well, maybe just that match. I mean, I didn't watch the whole show back. Um, did you have any interactions with JR? Did, how did it feel with Jim Ross calling your match? One of the greatest name, uh, the greatest voices in all of wrestling, I suppose. Yeah, I don't remember him calling the match. Um, I should probably go back and watch it. I haven't watched a lot of those matches, to be honest with you. Um, I've watched it. I, I never really watched a lot of my stuff, so I haven't really gone back and watched those, those matches. I should do. I remember Jim Ross. I remember meeting Jim Ross. He used to sit outside and having a coffee outside the full sale, so I'd go and introduce myself. Okay. Ask him for his advice and stuff, and things that he saw that I can improve. Like any good wrestler should do, you know, when you're around your peers, you should be asking mm. for advice. And he was always a very nice guy, to, you know, very pleasant to me, very helpful, and yeah, like any any good pro, really. You know, he was never never nasty too. He'd always be there to help you and give you advice when you needed it. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, also, speaking of the commentary again, but this is more uh, uh, Mr. Regal and some of the other more regular commentators they had. Um, there's a few things I do need to ask because at the time you were wrestling under the name Oliver Gray, weren't you? Yes. yes um, there's a few things I will need to, to clear up. Are you personally or Oliver Gray actually a blood relate- relative of King Edward I? No, no, certainly not. Okay, well, that, that um, was a claim by Mr. Regal. Um, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Regal had a few little inside jokes. I remember one time, um, I don't know if you understand, but he, he called me a, a well-renowned custard foot from Exeter, Devon. Yes. Uh, custard foot is a sort of wrestling The next one I'll ask. Yeah, and, 
that was good fun, you know. It's a good joke, isn't it? And I'm sure a lot of the boys in England had a good giggle when they heard him say that. But <laughs> yeah, he that gets was messing uh, around, isn't he? You know, it was yeah, yeah, it was good. He's he's a great character, isn't he? Oh uh, yeah, a great great promo. He he'd come down and help us with a promo sometimes, and he's a really good speaker on the mic. So it was another great bit of training from us. I had to play it back three or four times because I heard the term custard. And I was like, what did he say after that? And I couldn't quite catch it for several. So, and I finally got it. And I was like, okay, I need to look up what that is. That was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was a reference yeah, was to you being a lumberjack at one stage. Yeah, well, that was real. You know, I was a forester before I went mm-hmm. uh, and got signed. So when I went to my second tryout, they pulled me out the ring. I think, well, I wrestled around a bit. And they, um, Jamie Noble got in there and wrestled me for a while. So it gave me the nod there to yeah, give this kid a, a job. And when I got out the ring, they just say, what do you do for a living? And I, I'd done forestry work for years before that. I was growing up on the farm. That was sort of my thing. I got yeah, my chainsaw yeah. license and it was my job, really. And when I told them I did forestry work, I could see their eyes light up a little bit. Brilliant. Not that I ever did a lumberjack character there, but it was still, it was something different, you know. It was, mm. it was something to sort of make you stand out a bit, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's ironic as well, in a way, I suppose, because Regal at one stage had that man's man gimmick with the lumberjack shirt and the hard hat yeah. and all that, didn't he, as well? So Yeah, well, thank, thank God I didn't get lumber with that gimmick. <laughs> that entrance theme's great, one. You, you, you should have asked for that. That was a fantastic entrance theme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, obviously, eventually you, you left NXT. I know you picked up quite a serious injury that sidelined you for several months. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. I mean, how, how did the injury occur? Did you rehab and, and do all your training and so on to get back in Florida itself? Yeah, I was just um, resting Bray Wyatt on a house show and he went to give me a, a body slam. I was going to land behind him on the body slam and just come down badly and pull my ACL on my knee. Uh, and this was a few weeks for WrestleMania up in New York. So I meant to go up and do the access at WrestleMania. So I just kind of tried to pretend it was okay, really. And they were prodding it around and I was saying, no, I'm fine. And I drove my car back home and the next day at training, just stomped my foot down the meniscus inside my knee, just flipped over and sent me for an MRI scan. Um, I was eating lunch with Joe Cabray the next day, and they called me up and said, what are you doing? So I'm just having some lunch with a friend. So I'll just step outside for us for a minute, please. And they said, you'll be out for about nine months with a torn ACL, and uh, obviously you're not going to go to WrestleMania. Right. And, yeah, there was a lot of talk of us going up onto the, the road as well at that time, me and Pac. So that was onto the main roster, you mean? Onto the main roster, yeah, and that was all, yeah. all sort of scraps. Once the injury happens, and uh, yeah, it is what it is. You know, you can't do anything about it. You, there's no point worrying about it. But it was, it was tough. You know, it was hard. And my son, my son was born um, when I first moved to Florida, so I hadn't really seen him at all. And I couldn't go home. I had to sort of stay there and rehab. And you know, it's not a knock on the company at all, because that's what you have to do when you're injured. You got to get you back in the ring as quick as possible. But there was a lot of times when you think, "What am I? What am I doing here?" You know, I'm stuck halfway across the world and I really should be back with my, my boy in England and uh, yeah I don't know it, it, when I came back it had gone from 30 people in FCW to yeah close to 100 in NXT and suddenly your chances are going up pretty slim and you start looking around and going well you know my chances of making it to the big big time here aren't really going to happen and once you've had an injury like that you kind of got a little black tick against your name and it was a matter of time before they released me and just uh, we said goodbye Oh, that's a shame. It's a shame. I, mean, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine being in that scenario away for, away from your 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 son and um, obviously the, the the sadness as well of knowing that you can't do something you love, which is the reason you're away in the first place. I mean, it's like a double edged sword yeah. of, of of nastiness, isn't it? I guess that's, that that sounds horrific. Um, it's a very tough, and you, you're sitting there watching the training every day, you know, because you can't get in the ring, and you just think, I'm only. I'm only living in Florida for one reason, that's to wrestle. You know, if I can't mm. wrestle, I don't want to be here. I want to be back in England. And 
it is tough mentally. It's very challenging. And, you know, I probably didn't deal with it the right way at certain times when I did come back. And I remember I came back with a big knee brace on and just couldn't couldn't move the way I'd moved before. It really sort of played on my, my mind a little bit that I couldn't wrestle and couldn't do the same things that I, you know, I found pretty easy before I was injured. And I had to adapt to wrestling with a, a big knee brace on. And yeah, it's just, it's just life, you know, life throws you these things and it's just how you deal with them. It's a test of you, really. You yeah. Got to, got to dust yourself off and get back on it. And once they yeah. released the, uh, it was difficult when I first came back to England because I, you know, in a way I'd done a lot of these small halls and stuff. And when I got signed, I felt like I was off to America and I was a big time wrestler. And you sort of come back with your tail between your legs and you're, you're back to where you started and you, you just kind of got to get on with it really. And yeah, and go from there. And, and I was very lucky that Brian Dixon rang me as soon as I got back and we negotiated a, a deal. And I uh, went for all-star full-time, which is something that I'd always wanted to do before I went to the States. I'd always looked at Brian as being the, the number one and all-star being the, the best company in the, in the country. And to be there full-time wrestling for them was a big deal for me. And that was kind of made it a bit better to deal with, really, because I knew that I could come back and do that. Yeah, that's, that's a nice nice feeling to know. I suppose you've got at least that that to back you up i guess in this in this hard time i mean it must have been a very difficult time for you i mean also around around this this sort of time there was a a brief flirtation i believe with uh tna or impact wrestling with one of the their sort of trial tv programs they had for a while wasn't it was it the boot camp they called it yeah boot camp boot camp the second boot camp was good yes Um, up in the york hall that was that was all good uh didn't get out to America with them, but they had a good experience there. I did another thing, a gut check or something. That, was, that might have been before I went to America. I'm pretty sure I did the gut check. Another ah, gut kind check. of thing that they did for a now. while. So I remember doing that as well. And getting to the end of the gut check, and me and the rest of the bad bones were told to go and wait in the stairwell because they were going to send everyone else away, but they didn't want to let them know that they were keeping us, two of us back. And I remember that going quite well. I was in Wembley Arena, I think it was. And then, okay. Yeah, obviously nothing materialised, but I did sign a contract with WWE shortly after, so, mm. you know, I was kind of that- preoccupied, but, yeah, there's a couple of little run-ins of TNA in the past, but I helped out on a few tours and stuff when I was very young. I was with Mark Sloan, used to go and just help out with the ring and stuff, and be around their wrestlers and ask them questions, which is a good, good experience. Was that the, the six-sided ring they were using that stage, or were they still on four sides? Question. I think it was a six-sided ring. Yeah, oh, okay. I don't, again, my memory's shocking, but yeah, <laughs> very well could have been a six-sided ring. I just remember of Samoa Joe and AJ Styles and these guys being there at the time. Oh, I'm a big fan of both of them. Kurt Angle was there at the time, and Kurt Angle being involved with the company, so he was with us on the tour. Oh, okay, great. I mean, again, that's that's some fantastic talent to be around, isn't it? Those, those are three fantastic names there: Joe, Angle, and and Styles. I'm a big yeah, fan yeah. of three of those. So. Yeah. Um, from from there, then, as we sort of draw to a close here i don't want to keep you uh, too long this evening um you've been working back around the uk but you're also going out to all japan now um you've done a few tours out with japan haven't you i'm curious as to how that process came about and also the experience of wrestling in japan with regards to um i suppose the different culture the language barrier how long you're away for and so on so that experience came from that pro wrestling Noah show in uh, 2008 and wrestling the guy called mm-hmm. um, and yeah it must be 11 years later yeah 2019 when I went out to all Japan I just had a message in my junk folder on Facebook from them saying if I want to do Champions Carnival um, just out of the blue so 11 years later that match from 2008 obviously had paid off and 
they brought me out to Champions Carnival, and I, and I, in my head, I just thought, you know, all Japan obviously is a big name, and you think, well, I'm yeah. just going to get out there and do a tour, and that'll be it because they're not going to want to see me. You know, I'm an old thirty-two-year-old, thirty-three-year-old boy at the time, and I, you know, probably past my prime. But they end up inviting me to two more tours, and I did five tours last year with all Japan, and you know, I probably spent in the later part of the year a lot more time in Japan than I did in England. I remember going out there for sort of four weeks, and I'd come home for two weeks, and I'd go back out to Japan for five weeks. You know, it was. You know, probably not the best thing for my fiance, but she probably, probably, well, I don't know. I would say she's glad that I've been in, in England this year, but I don't know about that. It could be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but what an experience! And I was happy just doing the one tour and just saying I'd been there and seen Japan. But now mm. I'm able to be do those five tours with them, and seems to be getting good reviews. You know, I'm doing the British Wrestling Star, which I guess they don't have anyone else there doing it. In all Japan, you've got Danny Jones does it very, very well, but he's you know a bit smaller than me, so I normally bring him out for the junior heavyweights, and I go out for the heavyweight stuff, and we haven't um, crossed paths out there yet. There's if I'm not there, he's there, sort of thing. And uh, it was meant to be out back in April, which obviously didn't happen because of the lockdown. But yeah, hopefully next year we can get back out there and do some more work with him. You know, I I love the style. I just love wrestling. I, I'm not a big entertainer. I'm not big on that kind of sh- side of wrestling. I love just getting in there and just going at it. And that's what those boys do best. You know, the eye is just pretty much pure wrestling out there. There's not too much nonsense, and it just sort of suits me, and I enjoy it. And uh, I'm not a big fan of planning my whole match in the back. I like to just get in there and see how it feels when you get in the ring. And a lot of those guys don't speak any English, so you can't sit there and plan a whole match with them. You have just got to get in there and and just tussle around and call it off the cuff, which suits me really well. Yeah, I mean that that was that was I mean sort of part of the the, the question I had. It, it was with regards to the language barrier. Um, is it easy to do? I mean, obviously, that you've been going back a few times, so obviously you've been successful. So you must have found it easy to a degree, I guess. But with yeah. the first few times, was it easy enough calling it in the ring with someone who maybe doesn't have the same exact same language as you? Yeah, because a lot of so my stuff is just the grappling, so it's just holds and okay. the moves. The moves have the same name. So if I say body yeah. slam, they, they know what body slam is. If I say you know, suplex, I know what that is. The difficult bit comes when you've got some of these British routines that you, what they want you to do. And the British routines, um, you know, they can be quite complicated routines and there's not really any names for them that they would understand. So you're kind of going through it in the changing rooms and you're sort of running through these weird routines in the changing room, which is quite hard to do. Um, uh, uh, That can be difficult, but I need to sort of normally throw two or three per match in or or I might have one reversal that, you know, say Steve Wright, one of his reversals that I'm going to do very poorly, but I'm going to try and do out there. And I'll just sort of stick with that one reversal for that tour. Because you know, every tour, it's a different town every night. So I'll just have this one little reversal that I'm going to do. So once they've seen me do it a few times, the boys in the changing room, they kind of get have an idea of what I'm going to yeah. do. And it's not being lazy. It's just that's the only way I can do it out there because I can't communicate for every match these long routines of sequences of maneuvers that i want to get in the match you know which is a british routine so that can be quite hard and uh remember near the end of last year they they had it in their head that i was should have a, a pin as a finisher some kind of pin they'd never seen before and that would be my finisher and okay I'd rack in my brain for a pin that i could do quick on people and it'd be a surprise pin and i did one called a, a texas roll should be very hard to explain on the phone, but it's a, it's a pin that people haven't seen very very often, and okay. they didn't know what it was in Japan. So I was trying to explain this pin with people, and again, I seemed to do it a few times on people, and then they sort of picked it up and they could put it into the matches. But more with wrestling, you find it's not so much the move; it's the psychology. It's the and, and that's based on the crowd. You know, Japanese people, English people, American people—they're all very different in the way they react to wrestling. And when you're going out there, you're trying to entertain the audience. 
you know, and, and you, it's your job as a wrestler to try and work out normally during the match what people react well to, what this audience on this night want to see. Mm-hmm. Japanese audience react very differently to an English crowd. And so it's more the psychology of the match that you need to pick up, and that takes a bit more time. Now, whereas England, we can uh, do almost a slightly more American style. That doesn't really work as well in Japan. They kind of cheer when you get off the floor. They don't really cheer for the big move. They cheer for the guy getting back up again and showing that fighting, that warrior spirit. Right, okay, yeah. So you kind of plan your match around that, really. A lot of it near the end of the match is more about the guy kicking out and getting up to his feet. That's why you see and, the... And- you'll see top rope suplex and the other guy will just jump back up again and it's like this warrior spirit that he just doesn't even feel it he just gets up again and he keeps fighting and that's what they get really passionate about and they all cheer really loud for so oh, yes. I, I love it I mean I, I enjoy um, I enjoy New Japan I've seen bits and bobs of all Japan I enjoy that too and, and various other smaller Japanese companies that sort of pop up on my timeline or and people send me events to watch and someone will say, sorry, check this out, you'll love it. And, and maybe that's why I enjoy watching you work at my local shows so much as well. I always enjoy watching your matches because I'm all about the, the actual in-ring product myself. Um, any sort of characters or showmanship and so on, I always see just a bonus. To me, what happens in the ring is what's most important. And I always enjoy whenever I, I watch yourself wrestle because you tick a lot of boxes for me uh, on that level, if that makes sense. But that's, that's, you need to be able to read your audience. You know, and a lot of the time, saying uh, Morton Hall or something up in, in Gloucester, sometimes you'll get the crowd in there that they, they don't really want to see that. They want to just see bad guy, good guy, yeah, cowboys and Indians. And you just need to be able to work out what that night or that crowd that night want to see and be able to perform to get the best reaction out of them. You know, I've been at the Wooden Hall sometimes when they don't want to see that. They want to see good, pure wrestling. You know, mm-hmm. and it can change completely on, on what crowd have just turned up that night. But I find a lot of wrestlers now, they just get stuck in their ways of having this one style and this one way they're going to wrestle. And it's almost in their head that they, you know, they'll plan the whole match before they go out there. And it's just like, they're going to make you just sit there and watch this, but they're not going to bend all for the crowd. But I think a good wrestler can listen to the audience and be able to cater for that audience and change things when they're in there to try and get the best reaction. Yeah. Again, I mean, I'm very much outside looking in. I mean, no, no means no, no stretch of the imagination in any way, shape or form qualified to have an opinion on this. But at the same time, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me here, hearing you talk that way. I mean, I, you've got to, I, I think you've got to understand what the audience wants. Otherwise you're going to lose them quite quickly. Um, yeah, of course. And sometimes I might go out there and majority of the audience is kids and the kids don't really care what kind of wrist lock or arm bar I put on. They just want to boo the baddie and see me kick him up the bum a few times, you know? So it's just, <laughs> it's just sort of looking at that audience and working out what they want to see as a wrestler. Yeah, I understand. That's kind of the skill of a good wrestler, I think. But. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. Okay, I mean, as we're just uh, drawing to a close here, we'll have a little segment on the end of the show for the first time I speak to people. Just a little bit of fun. Um, we call it Bin It, Book It Best. Um, uh, those who have listened before are aware of the format. I'll just quickly run through in case there's anyone who hasn't. Um, bin it is very much something that you hate in wrestling, whether it's something personal or something you've seen on the television or anything at all you wish you could just travel back in time and erase or just chuck in the bin. Uh, book it is a little bit of fantasy booking, something you've seen that you think you could have ended better or something that you enjoyed but weren't too fond of the finish of whether it was a storyline an event or a match in particular and it's just a little bit of fantasy booking your your own your own rebooking of that 
And finally, we finish the show on your best, which is just so nice and positive to end on. Your favourite of something, whether it's a show you go back to on a regular basis, your all-time favourite wrestler, a match, anything at all. So, Joel, yeah. if you're ready, sir, I'll ask for your bin it, please. Well, bin it, I mean, it's going to be a slightly boring one, but my, my bin it would just be the, when ICV took British wrestling off television in the 80s. Um, it was no, getting, that's not a boring one at all, I agree with was, that. It was getting huge numbers, you know, it was really drawing well, and the fact that they thought it just didn't suit their image, you know, it was too working class for their image or some nonsense like that was mm-hmm. ludicrous and I think they lost a, I'm sure they lost a lot of money because it was a very very popular thing and I know British wrestling has some hard times after that they bought themselves back up again now but it definitely didn't help our industry so that would be my my bin it you know the fact that this this guy obviously thought it wasn't good enough for ICV was yeah stupid to me no, I'm fully on board with that fully on board with that I mean I uh, ITV4 every now and again which is for, for people who I've got a few people in America who, who listen I'm very fortunate enough that people listen from a few different places ITV4 in this country is the station that shows um, AEW but they also re-show some old World of Sport programs they're never on a um, I can never see, seem to find them on like a, a set time they just sort of pop up randomly so if I catch them I'm very fortunate but I still enjoy watching that style now. It's fantastic. And I think I agree with you. For your, for your shape for a minute there of, of the, that being removed, that to me is, I'm 100% agree with you. I, I, don't, I don't see why that happened. I think it was daft. And it was, it was a real shame. It was a shame. And even, you know, when they brought it back to that sort of newer uh, world of sports stuff, you know, they kept messing around with the times and they just didn't give them yeah. an opportunity to really be successful. And I think they kind of, again, wasted another opportunity. And it should have had more, Give it more time and be given more effort into what they were producing. They almost felt like they did it and they knew it was going to fail, so they didn't bother trying to make it any better than it was. But it's good that you've got all elite wrestling back on there, it's good that you've got something on there, and it's given us some more exposure as an industry to a, a huge market. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And the fact that it's on a channel that is available in pretty much every home um, may not be live. I mean, I think that's the next step. I hope that one day that happens. Dynamite is on live in this country, but at least you get it on a weekly basis on a channel that is effectively free to air. I think that's yeah. great for, for wrestling fans, especially young wrestling fans in this country. So, Yeah, for sure. It's brilliant. It's brilliant for the whole whole business. It's a bit like yeah. the NXT UK stuff or the world of, world of sports stuff. You know, I never had any contracts or world of sport or anything. I know a lot of boys that didn't have contracts and they all get, a bit bitter about it, but you've got to look at the big picture. And the big picture is that, you know, it was on TV. It was getting exposure for us all. And even if it means 50 people in Gloucester watch wrestling, they haven't watched wrestling before, and they come to Evolution, well, we're getting a bigger house. You know, the promoter is making more money. He's going to run more shows. So it's a trickle-down effect. It doesn't matter if you're not one of the boys involved in these big companies. As long as they're doing well and they're successful, it trickles down onto everybody else. and It makes us all successful as an industry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's the same, I suppose, looking on, the, on, on on higher levels again, I suppose, with the WWE itself. People are so critical of it. Um, I, I want it to be good. I want it to succeed because then you see it in, all over the all over the, the America, I suppose, and all over the rest of the business. Yeah, yeah, if exactly. the WWE is doing well, everywhere else tends to be doing well. So, Well, those late 90s, early 2000s, when it was so such a hot thing at the time, you look at some of Brian Dixon's houses then, it was just thousands and thousands of people coming to these British wrestling shows because they were watching Stone Cold on Monday Night Raw and they would all then come to English shows. So it was all, you know, it was trickling down to us then. We were getting yeah. a lot of good houses and the boys then in England were working every night of the week. You know, now even when we haven't got the, the lockdown, there's never, you know, it's not as many shows there used to be. You know, I, I normally wrestle about oh, 
150 matches a year or something. But, you know, I know when I speak to James Mason and people, there was times when he would do, you know, almost close to 400 matches a year. You know, it was Why? very good business back then. Yeah, I can imagine. Definitely. Um, okay. Um, moving along quickly then. Your, your book it, please. Um, I think I, when Bret Hart jumped to WCW, I think he was booked quite, quite poorly. Um, oh, definitely. One of the biggest names in the business and then sort of put as a, ma- a referee for a match straight away. He should have been put into the title picture, I think, from the get-go. So I think they really dropped the ball with that. You know, I think they should have used them a lot more than they did. I think they had this huge asset that they suddenly acquired and I don't know if they did the most they could have done with it. But that's probably, you know, a lot of WCW's later booking could be very questionable. But... Yeah, I mean, to me, it's that would have been... Um, we just, I discussed it briefly with a previous guest. I believe it might have been Liam Jones, actually. But he was the referee for the... Um, Goldberg no sorry Sting-Hogan match I made that mistake previous time as well uh, the Sting-Hogan match at Starcade 97 when he came in and that's kind of to me when WCW was at its hottest uh, and Hart after Montreal and all the, the shenanigans that went on there he was white hot and the fact that they didn't do something with this guy I think is just a, a, another, another example as to why eventually they went out of business isn't it yeah, it was just strange, wasn't it? It was strange booking, but hey, who am I? You know, they obviously they know more than me. You know, they're they they were a big big company, so they've already had some kind of idea. But yeah, well, yeah, so well I I suppose, but it's difficult playing... to rebook stuff. I don't. There's nothing that really sticks out to me. I mean, sometimes it probably was booked quite well. Just the crowd didn't react the way they thought they were going to react. You know, so it's not their fault. It's just the way it is. But. Yeah, potentially, potentially. I mean, also, don't sell yourself short there. I mean, the company that you used to run, is you say, is still going. WCW's not. So there we go. I'll just, throw, I'll just play devil's advocate. Like, uh, I'll throw yeah, that I'm out not sure for you. It's okay? quite the same. I'm not sure it's quite the same league. But... <laughs> no, I joke, obviously. But, I uh, wish it was. Yeah. I'd be a bit mad if it was. Um, and then finally, so something nice and positive to end our little chat on. Uh, your best, please, Joel. Uh, Survivor Series 2002, for some reason. I remember being a really good okay. pay-per-view. So I watched that. It's the first Elimination Chamber pay-per-view. Yep. Um, the Duddy Boys and the Tables match and Big Show and Lesnar. And for some reason, that, yeah, that always sticks out to me. And then oh, just, I um, that show. It's a, a bit random, but Hogan and Rock, the second match they had at No Way Out 2003, I like the Rock's entrance. Uh, the way he got booed so loudly when he made his entrance. I could watch that again and again. It was what an amazing entrance. He's just, just gone from being this great babyface just being hated by everybody and yeah that was something about that i could watch that a lot of times and my favorite wrestler is chris benoit so anything with chris benoit doesn't matter what match i can watch and enjoy and learn from you know to me he was just just the pinnacle of wrestling you know, it looked believable to me it looked very real and thought it was just fantastic i suppose as well it's throwing back a little bit to that um japanese style that we discussed previously isn't it very very realistic very hard hitting and very technical based he just he just looked real. You know, everyone, a lot of the wrestlers you could watch and you you knew it was wasn't real, but it's been while you watched it and you went, hang on a second, is this a work or not? Same with people like Fit Thinley as well. You could watch some of his stuff and you just you're not too sure if it was you know, was it real yeah. or it sort of suspended your disbelief very well. Um and I just thought Benoit was fantastic when I was a kid. Yeah, I all agree, my mates were Stone Cold fans or rock fans and I was a Chris Benoit fan. It was all random, but you just he just stuck out to me. And the, the the rock entrance you mentioned there, if I got my timeline correct, if I'm not getting muddled up, that's when he was doing the whole Hollywood rock. Yeah, with yeah. The, the helicopter the, come over the first. That, yeah, oh, yeah. I, that is amazing. The whole 
the whole intro video before his music hits and his music slowed down a bit as well isn't it it's, it's really cool it's brilliant absolutely yeah. brilliant and survivor series 2002 i'm all on board with that that's one of my favorite shows of all time i mean you've got like you said that that tables match with the dudleys and so yeah. on yeah, um, brilliant. And Scott signed his debut as well. Oh yes, of I course. Was on that show as well. And he cool. give me the effing mic they picked yeah, yeah. up by accident, brilliant. didn't they? And, yeah, um, I'm a huge Shawn Michaels fan, so seeing him win the Elimination Chamber for the title as well, and, and of course the triple threat match for the tag titles before yeah, with the yeah. Rose and oh, I'm gonna go back and watch that show tonight. That's fantastic. Oh, that's yeah, that's inspired brilliant. me now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, before I let you disappear, Joel, could you please let everyone know whereabouts they can find you on the old internet, on your, your social media links and so on? Yeah, cool. Uh, Twitter is Joel Redman Pro, um, and Instagram is j.redman87. Uh, I'm, I'm not good with social media. I'm really not good. I, I don't post very much. I, I don't like taking pictures of myself in the gym. The gym I go to is a very spitting sawdust gym, and the idea of wearing a vest in the gym would put me off a little bit so okay. set up a camera and film myself train is probably not going to happen anytime soon but i will try my best to be better at it and i will try to put some more content out there i'm just a little bit i find it difficult to film my day-to-day life you know and just think that people would really care what i do every day but yeah i do struggle a bit with social media um and then the yeah twitter is quite big in japan so the twitter i try and keep going when i'm on tours out there and you know i do put the occasional thing when I'm in Japan of what's going on out there, which might be quite interesting to see if you're a British wrestling fan. So yeah. if you know, I'm in Japan, check my Instagram, my Twitter, and there'll be some content, hopefully from Japan, a few castles or samurai swords or something. <laughs> brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Well, um, thank you very, very much for taking some time out your evening today to come Great. and, uh, have a chat about this crazy world of wrestling. It's a fantastic story with, with going off to the States and Japan and your, you're growing up on the farm and building your own ring. I, I find that I find the whole thing fascinating. It's a brilliant chat. When this comes out, I'll tag you all in it and so on as well. Yeah, great. Um, and thank you for rearranging the time so I can watch the Great British Bake Off. It's very nice of you. <laughs> Not a problem. Not I'll a enjoy problem. watching that now. No worries. I'll let you get off and watch the Bake Off. Joel, thank you very much for your time, sir. No problems. Thanks very much. Thank you. Good luck. Cheers. Bye.